you have your uh, copy of God's word there, I invite you to go to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1. We will be starting a new series that will take place. It won't go in succession. I know some of you travel during the summer. Maybe you have internships that would take you away. Maybe go home. Uh, we won't be going consecutively from now until when we're done in uh, Romans chapter 16. Um, we'll be taking breaks along the way. Um, you can pray for me as we uh, do that. We're looking for uh, to take this through the end of this semester. And then we'll do, be doing something different during the summer. And then we'll come back for a little bit in the book of Romans. And then the month of October, um, I think probably because I'm a glutton for punishment, um, we'll be doing a series called Identity Politics. Um, nothing better than preaching on the Bible's view of government and politics in the month leading up to an election. So then we'll jump back into Romans and we'll stay there until Christmas time. So that's kind of takes you... Uh, through uh, to the end of the year, and so just want to put that on your radar. But tonight, we're going to jump into the book of Romans, so if you're there in Romans chapter 1, if you'd stand with me as we pay honor to the reading of God's Word. Romans chapter 1, we'll read verses 1 through 7 together this evening. This is God's Word to us. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through him, we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations, for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is God's word to us. Let's go to him in prayer this evening. Father, we come to you tonight. Uh, understanding the weighty task that lies in front of us to understand and apply your word to our lives. And Father, we ask in the moments to come, you would help us to have ears to hear, eyes to see, and a heart to believe, because we robustly confess that your word alone is what changes people. And tonight, we're asking you to change us, uh, for some to be more conformed into your image. For others, Father, that don't know you, that they would come to know you. So we ask that in uh, the, the few moments that we're together, that you would allow your word to do its work. But Father, we're also aware tonight that we're not the only church that is gathering together and preaching uh, your word. And so we, we think and we want to pray for those around the city who will also be opening your word together tonight. We think of our friends at Graceway Baptist Church, and we also think of our friends at Second Baptist Church, God, and we ask that you would allow their ministries to increase and that you would see them uh, reach people for the cause of Christ as well. Because we know we're not the only Christians in Springfield. So we ask and pray that you would uh, help them as they uh, endeavor to do similar things this evening. And then, Father, again, we ask now that you be with us as we dive into your word. Again, make us sensitive to where we need to change. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. You can be 
conceited. A, a lot of times, what comes to our mind when we think of the greatest in a particular category is subjective to our own personal experiences. If I were to ask you, and who's the greatest athlete of all time? Who's the greatest basketball player of all time? If I were to ask you, who's the greatest band or musician of all time? If I was to ask you, who's the greatest actor or actress there is of all time? The opinions would probably carry us uh, well into the night, especially if we found ourselves on your particular category of interest. I'm sure you would lecture us to no end about how a particular team is the greatest, despite the fact that you might be in grave error. Think of people who cheer for teams such as the Chicago Cubs or the Oakland Raiders, uh, people who are, for all intents and purposes, if we were to judge their spiritual capacity based on those choices, we would find them lacking. Um, you think of people who find different movie franchises to be well done, uh, people who understand that um, and think highly of the Lord of the Rings series versus Star Wars. And you just wonder, how can a reading person who's actually read books think that the Lord of the Rings can even hold a candle to Star Wars? Such opinions would debate ad nauseum, and some of them will no doubt spark debate in collective. Some of you were like, I don't know that I was going to stick around for collective, but now you're like, I've got to straighten this pastor out. I'm going to stay and have a slice of pizza. But sometimes things get so hyped and, and, and so exaggerated, and the suspense of the moment carries us to them, only to f find them lacking. Um, this probably won't come as a shock to all of you, but I don't consider myself a purveyor of fine art. I don't consider myself to be an expert in this field at all. But a few weeks ago, when I was in Kansas City, uh, I was a, in a Ph.D. seminar, the, the faculty members announced that they were going to take us to the Nelson Atkins Museum of Art to look at art. And um, as any good student knows, I'm not into art, but I am into my teachers thinking that I care what they think of me. So I went. I went, and uh, I, I uh, was excited not to see what they were taking us to see, but I was excited because I had heard that there were very well-known uh, painters uh, had portraits hanging in the Nelson Atkins Museum of Art. And so I was more excited to see those than I was to see what we were going to see. So they went, lectured briefly on a, a piece of art, and then we broke off. And uh, I immediately began to hunt for famous names that I would recognize. I must admit that if art was the Jeopardy category that I was required to answer, I would probably struggle. And I remember thinking, as I began to make my way around the museum, I, I wonder if this is going to measure up to the hype. Now you hear the names like Van Gogh, Monet, Picasso. You know that you're supposed to be in awe of these things. Well, these are three names that were hanging in the Nelson Atkins Museum of Art, and I came about them rather inauspiciously, which is a kind way of saying I didn't find them in the order in which I probably should have. 
For I discovered Picasso first and was completely underwhelmed. For I thought, I got to be real honest. Our broke college students could do far better than this. And I was beginning to think maybe I've missed, I've missed it. This is not my field. This is not what I'm supposed to. I, I just was in utter lack of awe. If you could find any less awe in that museum, in anyone, I would have been surprised. But then I turned the corner and saw paintings by Van Gogh and Monet. And I cannot claim to be an art purveyor. But I can tell you, I understand why people sit and stare at those paintings for hours. And I felt found myself a nerdy theologian, someone who was completely out of his element, sitting and standing in awe, and then having to masquerade that I wasn't as my classmates got in the car to go eat Ethiopian food. And the reason why I introduce our sermon tonight with that illustration is there are a lot of books that get a whole lot of hype in the Bible. If you ask people what their favorite book of the Bible is, you get all kinds of different answers. But when it comes to the, the collection of Paul's writings, Romans is considered to be the magnum opus. It's supposed to be considered as Paul's finest work. And I think sometimes because of that, we are intimidated to uh, tackle it. And so... Over the next few semesters, we're going to dive and make our way into this magnificent book. And I, I promise you that if you are patient, and if you take your time, and you find yourself staring at these words, and you find yourself reading them and rereading them, reading them in anticipation of hearing the sermon, and rereading them in reflection from the sermon, not because of the sermon, but because of the words, because of the Holy Spirit behind them. I think you find yourself, much like I found myself in that museum, standing there in awe, in utter awe. But here's the thing. I stood in awe, not of Van Gogh or of Monet, because I don't know them. They're dead. I know that's surprising to you. I think what will happen here is you will stand in awe of the book of Romans. And probably for the first time, maybe you won't be in awe of the Apostle Paul. You'll be in awe of the God who he writes about. And the salvation that he brings to the surface. The ebb and the flow of his argument. We find the book of Romans and tonight we're merely as the, the sermon title suggests. We're heading to Rome. We're introducing ourselves to the book of Romans. And so what I want to do tonight is lay before you three uh, brief thoughts that will help us get our mind wrapped around the book of Romans. Now, let's just start with the theme of Romans. It'll be a few weeks, namely if the Lord tarries and the snow holds off, we will arrive at the theme of verse of the book of Romans and we'll read it now and it will prepare us for it later and that would be Romans 1 16 and 17 Paul writes this for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ 
For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. For the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. This is the theme verse. This is the hinge section. We read Paul's introductory remarks together tonight. Next week we'll consider his thanksgiving, his overflowing thankfulness for the Roman Christians that are gathered there together. And then two short weeks from now, we will find ourselves, if you will, hurled, slung into the depths of the riches of the book of Romans. If we were going to give it a theme, and I think it's simple enough that it works, and it's also on the back of your bulletin as a hashtag, we would refer to it as just gospel. Just gospel. That's the theme of the book of Romans. Paul is concerned, and rightly so, that the gospel message would be diluted or distorted or forgotten altogether. Consider these facts about the book of Romans. The church that's gathered in Rome, the apostle Paul has no uh, hand in helping to plant it. He's writing to it anticipation of journeying there, fellowshipping with those Christians, and then heading on to Spain where the gospel has not yet reached. Think about that. The Apostle Paul in the modern era is going to be making his way through to Rome and then hopefully then on from there to Spain. So he's concerned about this particular group because he does not know them as well as we think about the church at Ephesus or even the church at Philippi, which we know if we read the book of Philippians, the church at Philippi and Paul shared a special love and affection for each other. They cared deeply for each other. So Paul is writing to a group, and this is probably what lends the book of Romans to being one of the larger books, the largest book that the Apostle Paul will write, because in it he is delineating, he's unpacking for us his theology and what should be their theology. It's interesting to think about it. In fact, here in the book of Romans, this introductory paragraph, these first seven verses are considered the greeting portion of this letter. And it's the longest greeting that you will find the Apostle Paul writing. It's big and it's verbose. And this is where Paul gets his, maybe his reputation for being wordy, we could say in this. Contrast it, if you will, with the fact that there's no greeting section in the book of Galatians. We read the first five verses of the book of Galatians, and then Paul launches into a church that he knows very well and says, I'm so shocked that you've already departed from the faith. Here we don't find such an introduction. Even in the introduction, what we do find is Paul making much of Christ. The book of Romans is written around A.D. 57, is it's dating? We need to know that. It helps us to contextually put together this. Think about that in relationship to the fact that we're about 20 years removed from the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and his ascension. So we're getting into a second generation of Christians. The other thing that makes Romans interesting and why it's so focused on the gospel is Paul is writing to a large Gentile group and a significantly smaller Jewish group that have found themselves together in Rome. 
And both find themselves at conflict primarily over their ethnic identity. Jews, we were the chosen people of God. Therefore, we're superior to the Gentiles. And Gentiles who say to the Jews, you guys rejected the Messiah. You can be the chosen people of God all day long, but you all rejected him. And now his message has been extended to us. So we're actually better because we paid attention. We listened and believed. And there's conflict that is there. It's interesting that if we were to mark ourselves off in the year 2020 and go back in time to A.D. 57, almost 2,000 years ago, we still find one of the common markers of strife inside of the local church being one over ethnicity and, and racial makeup. So when we're tempted to think that we're the first group of Christians who've ever struggled with racial identity and how that factors into our walk with Christ, we need to be reminded that actually this is an age-old problem. The Apostle Paul is going to help us to think through making sure that our identity is functionally found first in Christ, and that impacts the way that we understand everything about ourselves. So he's concerned then that this gospel message will be diluted or distorted. But even more so, the Apostle Paul is going to show us how the gospel actually applies to our whole life. For those of you who are note takers, we notice that the introduction there is found in chapter 1, verse 1 through verse 17. And inside of that introduction, we have the greeting, we have a thanksgiving portion, and then we find the theme verses. And from there, we hinge into verse 18, and chapter 1, verse 18, all the way to the end of chapter 4, focuses on this thought, the gospel as righteousness by faith. Then chapters 5 through 8, we understand how to tap into gospel power. And then chapters 9 through 11, some of the most hotly debated chapters in all of the book of Romans, focus about the relationship between the gospel and the nation of Israel. That's all theology. Chapters 1, 1, all the way to the end of chapter 11. 11 chapters of theology and doctrine. And then in Romans chapter 12, on a hinge verse there, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. We, we memorize that verse in Awana. Um, it's a, this, that, that hinge verse in the book of Romans. And from there, the Apostle Paul launches us into three chapters where he focuses on what I'm going to affectionately refer to as the gospel and real life. How do I functionally implement the gospel? Eleven chapters of theology and then chapters 12 through 15 verse 13 are functionally practical application, which is a good way for us to note out, by the way, how much in the Bible the Apostle Paul and other gospel writers are far more concerned that you get your theology right before they understand and unpack for you how you are to live in light of that theology because they understand this, right theology leads to right living. And then in Romans chapter 15, all the way into the 
verse 13 all the way to the end of chapter 16 is Paul's farewell to this church. So let's consider then, if we understand the theme as being just the gospel, let's consider the messenger, the apostle Paul. Let's look at verse number one. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Paul's identifying marker is the word doulos. It's a Greek word for servant. He's a servant of Jesus Christ. He doesn't understand himself to be a great thinker, a great articulator, a great motivator, first and foremost, to these Roman Christians. He identifies himself first and foremost as a servant, which would do us all to remember that first and foremost, we are servants of the Lord Jesus Christ, those of us who are Christ's followers. That we ultimately don't find our identity in our superiority of Bible trivia, Lest we were to go to a table and play a game of Bible trivia, some would do better than others. But that's not the identifying marker. In fact, Jesus, if he were to return, would find far greater joy in the one who serves than the one who sits and is able to spout much knowledge. Because the person who understands that they're called first and foremost to be a servant understands that their theology always makes its way to their feet. And carries them living into life. Then Paul says, I'm called to be an apostle. Remember the Damascus Road experience. If we were to go to the book of Acts, we were reminded that the apostle Paul is a persecutor. He's a terrorist. Christians don't like to say that because, you know, it's easier when you're a Republican first. It's easier when you find your identity in American patriotism first and not Christ, to be quick to say, terrorists are bad people, let's blow them off the face of the earth. I am thankful that there was no America to blow the Apostle Paul off the face of the earth, but rather he has an encounter with a living God, and as a result, his zeal for persecuting Christians turns into zeal for reaching Christians, reaching people, encouraging people, emboldening them to live on mission. This is the Apostle Paul. Now, notice what he does in these verses. He says, I've been separated to the gospel of God. And this is the meat of the introduction here. Which he promised through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. The Apostle Paul begins as the messenger by highlighting the fact that he believes that the Holy Scriptures are from God. Now, what does Paul have in mind here? Specifically, the Old Testament. We're going to have to, as my Hebrew professor would say, keep our snake eyes open as we read through the book of Romans because the Apostle Paul is going to dance between explaining his theology and tying in the Old Testament. And if we're not careful, much like the person walking in the Amazon who steps on a snake or a snake falls on them and doesn't keep their snake eyes open, they're caught off guard by an Old Testament reference and blow the whole meaning of the passage. That's what it means to keep your snake eyes open. So the Apostle Paul has an incredibly high view of Scripture. And then notice he continues on in verse 3. Concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David. That's an Old Testament reference. We read the book of Matthew. Matthew is highlighting for us that Jesus is the very son of God come through the line of David. The Apostle Paul is confirming for us, even in this introduction, 
Matthew's account of the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He continues on, who was born of the seed of David, according to the flesh, meaning he came in a real incarnate body. Jesus isn't a spirit. He isn't a ghost. He isn't an angel. He came to earth as a real, literal man. This Jesus was truly God and truly man. So he's declared to be the son of God with the power according to the spirit of holiness by resurrection from the dead. This Jesus is the promised Messiah. He was buried. He did die literally after a crucifixion and he is raised from the dead. We're not serving a dead savior, but one that's alive. Through him, we receive grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. Here he highlights the fact that it's the grace of God that saves us. So you read this particular introduction and you begin to think, what is Paul doing here? He's highlighting the truth of the gospel, even in his introduction. This is the message that is going to carry him on. Friend, tonight you might be find yourself here and, and you don't know Christ. You, you don't have a relationship with him. You, you, you were told that there was going to be free food, so you came along. But you know nothing of this person that Paul is talking about. Well, this person that Paul introduces uh, the Romans to, though he need no introduction, the Christians there would have known him, is the same person that you need in your life. You may be sitting here and not know of Jesus. You've never heard of him. And some of you may be sitting here and you've heard of him quite regularly. But find yourself with no real relationship. The Apostle Paul tells you how you can have that relationship. It's through grace and faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And if you want to know how that can be true tonight, I would just invite you in the time we spend together eating pizza to simply ask the people sitting at your table, what does it mean to be a Christ follower? And they would love to be able to share that with you. Notice also the Apostle Paul says in verse 6, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. Why? Because in verse 5, through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. These called out ones, these Christ followers, they're to go to all the nations. The, the book of Romans is not merely just an explanation of the gospel. No, it's a call to take this gospel to the nations. One author, writer, would refer to back to the book of Psalms and say that in light of Romans and our proclamation of the gospel to Romans, the idea is that the nations would be glad. Let them be glad as they hear this message and trust in him. You can tell that the apostle Paul, this messenger, loves these believers. He says, to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, beloved of God. This is an intimate relationship. How can the Apostle Paul desire and call them beloved of God, yet never have met them? The same way you can call those Christians who are persecuted in North Korea tonight, beloved of God. 
because your common bond is not in your ethnicity, ethnicity or your country of origin or your ability to be able to access free internet. Your unity, your identity, your shared common beloved relationship is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. This inherently leads us to the final thing we must consider before we bring this time to a close. Why would we study the book of Romans? Why would we spend semesters studying the book of Romans? Why would we entrust our pastor to go into a study and mine the depths of this book to bring God's word to bear? Well, number one, the book of Romans has a tendency and a right tendency to reorient the way that we think about our salvation. Your natural tendency is to be self-centered, to focus inwardly on yourself. You tend to think about your salvation in terms of what you have done. What the book of Romans does is it reorients the way that you think about your salvation. Not what you have done, but what God has done in and through Christ. And we need to be reoriented. We need to have the right view of our salvation. Paul wanted Rome, and just like Rome needs to be reminded of this, we also need to be reminded about this, that there's nothing special about Rome. Think about Rome as a city, even today. Powerful, metropolitan, at the time, capital city, still continues to be the capital city. The people of Rome would think themselves to be better than others because their city offered them power and prestige because they were Roman citizens. The Apostle Paul wants to break that barrier down as well and remind them that their worth and value is inherently not rooted in where they live. Again, we find ourselves reading the book of Romans almost 2,000 years after It's been written and it's still relevant to our own society and culture because we tend to gather identity from where we're from or our power and prestige as being citizens of a particular place. Paul wants the Romans to understand that they live in a city which must submit to God and Christ must be preached there. We need to be reminded tonight that there is nothing inherently valuable or worthwhile about being from Springfield or Bolivar or Nixa or Ozark or from the state of Missouri. Yes, the Blues lucked into winning an NHL championship. It's nice of them to join the party. And the Chiefs, after 50 years, win the Super Bowl. But there's no inherent worth that you bring to either one of those organizations merely by living here. And people live deluded lives thinking they are somehow better citizens of the United States because they live in a geographic locale that experience sports success. Much like those in Washington, D.C. who think themselves to be better because they live in the nation's capital. We need to be reminded constantly that our worth, our dignity, and value is never wrapped up in who we are apart from Jesus Christ. And Paul wants to remind the Romans of this. I'll I'll share this from Tom Schreiner and then we'll be close to being done. The main motivation undergirding this Pauline mission is that Jesus Christ and God will be glorified through Paul's proclamation 
of the gospel to all people. And that's a call that extends to us to share the gospel with other people. And again, I would just in closing remind you of the fact that the Apostle Paul is going to spend 12 chapters, 11 chapters, excuse me, functionally giving us theology that impacts our life before he ever begins to talk about right living. Now, we'll make connections along the way, but I think the Apostle Paul does this to communicate a really important truth. A lot of Christians live their life backward. They live through experience, and then they correct their experience with doctrine. And it's a constant battle because their experience is often more valuable than what is written in Scripture. And the Apostle Paul wants, again, to flip this message. He wants to flip it and say, you've got to think through right theology, right thinking will inevitably lead to right living. So our thinking, our thoughts must be submissive to the biblical text because it will impact the way that we live. Think about the way that we live on our campuses. Think about our jobs. Things about help us to think about the way that we can share the gospel. So tonight we head into the book of Romans, and this is what I would encourage you to do this week. I would encourage you first and foremost to think about your relationship with Jesus Christ. Do you know the Jesus that is described here in Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7? Do you have a relationship that the Apostle Paul is describing? Regardless of whether or not you're a church member or this is the first time you've ever been in a church, your greatest need tonight is to know and have a relationship with the God of the Scriptures, and that is only possible through Jesus Christ, His Son, as described in these verses. Then secondly, I would encourage you to begin to read the book of Romans slowly, paying attention, taking notes. It's surprising to me. Talked about this uh, this week with some parents. It's surprising to me. I continue to watch at year almost year six being done as a, a college minister. Class of freshmen after freshman after freshman that come to Bible colleges, come to secular state institutions, well trained, well trained and well versed in the areas of AP calculus and AP English, AP history, high SAT scores and high ACT scores and high FBI scores. And they're very bright, but they're almost illiterate when it comes to the scriptures. We have got to reclaim inside of our society thinking Christians who study to mind God's word as deeply and with as much fervor as we did to get into our programs or to get into our future programs or to survive our current programs. Why? Because of this. I'm fast approaching the end of my PhD program where I'll sit in front of a dissertation committee. They'll evaluate what I've written, quiz me, grill me, question me. And a lot of people live their entire life thinking that those moments are the moments that define you. But what we need to be constantly reminded of is that there's a meeting that will outrank any other program acceptance meeting, any other job interview, any other dissertation committee, or any committee just in general. The powers that be can convene the Senate and the House to impeach presidents, and we can be in awe of those meetings. 
We can be in awe of anyone who's called in front of the Senate or the House to give an answer. But make no mistake, the greatest moment in your life, the one that you spend eternity preparing for, is the audience you will have with one. You will stand before a living God and give an account for your life in relationship to what he has revealed to you through his word. And friends, that interview, that audience supersedes the collective audiences of importance throughout this globe, even right now. Consider then, do you really know who's the scribe? And if you don't, be open and willing and honest to admit that and to figure out how you can come to know him. Paul's going to help us along the way to make sure we clearly see and pray.